Why do birders love Tallahassee, Florida so much? Simple, because so many beautiful birds love Tallahassee too. Located on two migratory pathways, Florida's capital city is one of the top birding locations in the country. And with nearly a dozen sites on the Great Florida Birding and Wildlife Trail, you can't turn around without spotting another live bird to check off your list. And once you put your binoculars down for the day, Tallahassee's world-class culinary scene and comfortable accommodations will have you rested and ready to do it all over again. Learn more at visittallahassee.com. Hello, and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick. The much-anticipated 2022-23 Winter Finch Report is out, produced by Tyler Hoare, former American Birding Podcast guest, and the man who took over for birding icon Ron Pittaway in putting together the forecast for what cool boreal finches might be heading southward in the winter. If you have not seen it yet, let me be the first to tell you that it is probably going to be a slow year for you. I hate to be the bearer of, well, not bad, not really even disappointing news, just news. It's the news. According to Tyler, the cone crop from British Columbia, Northwest Territories, all the way to Northern Ontario is bumper. Even the cones in the high country of the Rockies are good all the way into Northern Arizona. What that means is that the birds don't have to go anywhere. They can sit tight in their home ranges, gorging themselves on pine seeds until the winter ends. Their larders are full. That means that birders in southern Canada and maybe some of the northern border states might get some flights of crossbills, evening grosbeaks, but the rest of us are mostly out of luck. Red bulls might move south because of poor birch crops, which is nice, and red-breasted nuthatches might be more obvious than normal, but the classic winter birds, the grosbeak finches, the white-winged crossbills, the bohemian waxwings, whose name suggests a far more rambling lifestyle than we've seen in many years, will be sparse to non-existent this year in the, I guess, the eruption zone, uh, basically anywhere south of the U.S.-Canada border. Those of you in the Maritimes, in the Upper Great Lakes, and in the High Rockies, it looks like you will have all the birds to yourself this winter, according to Tyler, that is, and I have no reason to doubt him. Enjoy them, and we will all enjoy them vicariously through you. On the show this week, have you ever wanted to identify baby birds but been frustrated with the resources available to you? You are in luck. Linda Tuttle Adams is the author of the brand new Baby Bird Identification, a North American Guide, a really nice new book from Cornell University Press. It gives you all the tools you need to identify baby birds and to get them the help they need if that is necessary too. She joins me to talk baby bird ID and more after this week's Rare Birds. <laughs> This is your Rare Bird Focus for the middle of October 2022. Finally, we turn her gaze away from Alaska. Well, maybe not entirely. Things have cooled down a bit, but St. Paul Island still had the ABA area's 10th wood warbler and the ABA area's third song thrush last week, but the tap has certainly turned from gushing to dribbling up there. We turn instead to the Atlantic coast, down to Georgia, where a Hammonds flycatcher was very well documented at Sea Island in Glynn County. It represents a first for that state and yet another Western North American flycatcher in the southeast where birders have gotten quite good at picking these out in recent years. It is, in fact, vagrant flycatcher season in the east. The District of Columbia boasted its first record of Say's Phoebe 
this week. A very nice find for a very tiny and developed district. Keeping with the flycatcher theme, we move north to New York, where the state's first record of sulfur-bellied flycatcher was well photographed in the Bronx. Funnily enough, the bird hung tight along Sycamore Avenue, perhaps the closest thing it could find to the sycamore groves it favors in the southwest. Further north still to Massachusetts, where a maybe driven by Hurricane Fiona, maybe not, red-footed booby was photographed offshore Essex County this last week, a state first. This pan-tropical sulid is quite rare north of Florida in the western Atlantic, and New England is quite exceptional. It was a week for unchaseable rarities in Massachusetts, as this week we also got word of a common red shank in Massachusetts this past July. It was near a closed area of Monomoy National Wildlife Refuge on Cape Cod, accessible only by boat. I am not going to get into the politics of suppressing rarities here, but only note that it is an interesting record given the bird in Michigan earlier in 2022. And north once again to Quebec, where the ABA area's third record of common scoter, the old world version of our familiar black scoter, was found at Val d'Or. This is a Canada and Eastern North America first as well. Previous ABA area records come from California and Oregon. Those are the highlights of the week. For a full accounting, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org RBA. You can also follow along with all the Rare Bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook. What are the great identification frontiers for birders? Seabirds, flycatchers, sure, but how many would say baby birds? Try to identify a gangly, fluffy mess of a bird and you immediately realize the need for a real resource to help you out. Um, that has been the work of Linda Tuttle Adams, an artist and wildlife rehabilitator whose new book, Baby Bird Identification, A North American Guide, is out this month from Cornell University Press. She's here to talk about it. Welcome, Linda. Congratulations on the book. Thank you very much. I'm really excited. What need did you see for a book like this among either hobby bird watchers or bird rehabilitators? Well, it started a long time ago, several years ago, when mm -hmm. um, I joined wildlife rehabilitation. Um, and I'm a biologist. And uh, I think that we would get birds in and people just had no clue what they were. And then the first <laughs> yeah. thing people do is go to the internet and look up pictures. And right. so there's a lot of misidentification. Um, so yeah. I felt it was necessary to provide a guide to help people figure out what they have. Yeah. So do you see the audience for this sort of book to be bird people who, who take in birds like that, people who find birds like that, or just basically anyone who's interested in, in bird identification, I don't know, like the frontiers of bird identification. There's not a lot out there on baby birds. No, there's not. Um, I, I, there's a few books that have nests and eggs and a few baby birds. Um, but with the calls that we get as wildlife rehabilitators, um, there's, and then I'm also on, I do a lot of networking and I'm in birding groups too. And people yeah. want to know what baby bird they found or what nest oh, they have sure. in their backyard. Um, so yeah, so anybody is interested and they, when they come out of their nest, do they need to rescue them? Do they need to leave it alone and <laughs> what to do? So yeah. it's necessary to have a, some help. <laughs> Yeah. So, so why are baby birds so difficult to identify? Um, I think people are used to looking at adult birds and the features on mm -hmm. adult birds because the baby bird doesn't look anything like it's adult. So you yeah. have two kinds of 
quote, baby birds, and that's not a scientific term, but it attracts <laughs> everybody. So you have altricial or precocial, and the precocial are running around, and they're fully uh, feathered, and then altricial, naked, they have n- no feathers or few or just a little bit of down, and they don't resemble the adult at all. So mm-hmm. um, that's why they tend to be difficult, and the songbirds tend to be the most difficult and most confusing. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So, you know, in addition to all the the text that you did for the book, you you did the artwork as well. And, uh, you know, there are species for which there, I, I assume, are, you know, very little reference material or species which you didn't have a, maybe a lot of personal experience with. Uh, how did you handle all that? So with, with the species such as warblers that are very hard to find in their nest, because um, they are very secretive, I... Uh, I went to the museum and I I also purchased several books about uh, warblers in particular. Another group, another family group are the New World Sparrows. And Mm -hmm. because they all looked alike, little brown birds, right? Everybody (laughs) calls them little brown birds. So I I took a lot of time on those two family groups to point out the differences between the species, especially where they're they're sympatric, where they nest Mm -hmm. and their nest ranges overlap. Then I also went to um, a couple of museums, one I used to work at in California Academy of Sciences in San Francisco, and I went to Berkeley University at Berkeley, and I studied little jars or big jars of um, naked (laughs) baby birds and picked out things and I drew them. And so there's a few of them in there that I, they're renditions of what I think they would look like, but no, there's, there's very few, um, descriptions of some of these birds. Yeah. And and I think what's sort of interesting about it is that in addition to illustrating the birds as, you know, as you say, there's, there's baby birds as sort of an imperfect characterization, right? Because there are birds that, birds look very different the minute they come out of the egg and maybe even, you know, day to day, they're changing so much. And so you have to have illustrations of not only birds that are are recently hatched, but also birds that maybe are a week old or two weeks old and slowly changing. Um, that's it's a lot to it's a lot to look at. Oh, exactly. Um, you there's there's no way in the world to draw or illustrate um, the day to day changes in a baby bird and having. Mm-hmm. As a wildlife rehabilitator of 14 years, I see how quickly they change. I and mean, we're talking about yeah. some birds. Cuckoos are not songbirds, but they they are like running in nine days after hatching. And yeah, yeah. Um, they have the strangest feathers, by the way. You know, I've heard really a lot of weird things about cuckoos too. You know, like I, I used to work <laughs> in a bird um, in, the, in the collections of the North Carolina Museum. And I used to do um, study skins, yeah. I used to make study skins. And um, yeah, cuckoos are yeah. just like in the hand. They're just bizarre birds. Like every aspect of their biology is just weird as all get out. Every aspect. Yeah. They're the, the way that the, um, they're raised that, you know, that the fact they, they can be running and escaping predators within a short period of time. Yeah. And we only get the yellow-billed cuckoo out west here mm-hmm. and very few nesting records also. So we're not real familiar. You asked me a question about Eastern birds. Oh, sorry. Birds. Yeah, I jumped, um, started talking about um, cuckoos and I got distracted. Because <laughs> I live, yeah, I live on, that's okay. I, I love cuckoos. <laughs> I would love to meet one someday. Um, but I live on the West Coast. And so I contacted some wildlife rehabilitators on the East Coast 
And um, they are mentioned in my book and they supplied a lot of growth data for me. And, um, and then they also supplied photos while they were bringing them up. And so, um, you know, while they were raising them. And so what I did in the book was if for the most common birds that people might find in their backyard, which happens to be the same ones that wildlife rehabilitators receive, um, I painted them the hatchlings because you want to identify the most common birds first. Then when you get something different like a cuckoo or like uh, a warbler, then you can say, oh, this is not a songbird. It's not a passerine bird. This is a songbird. Mm-hmm. So now you can narrow down the, you know, the, the eons of family groups and narrow it down to a family group that that bird might belong. Um, you also mentioned something about the minute it hatches. Some baby birds, when they hatch, if you just look at the beak, you will know what family group it belongs, no matter mm-hmm. how old it is. So that's what I tell people is don't look at just feathers. You have to look at the beak yeah. shape and then you have to look at the feet. Yeah. So so why is it important for people to be able to identify these birds besides just, you know, it's interesting to be able to identify the things that you see. Why would someone need to identify these birds? So a couple of reasons. The first thing that comes to my mind and my heart is conservation. And with what's happening in our environment, we um, now more than ever need to preserve, uh, you know, birds, especially they're the barometer to the health of our planet. Mm -hmm. And so um, we're losing birds out west here to all kinds of things, but we've had terrible wildfires and our environment is changing very quickly. So wildlife rehabilitators are the first to receive some of these animals and they will identify something, maybe a disease that's happening out Mm, there, mm -hmm. or we get a finch with conjunctivitis. We know right away, take down the feeders. Um, The, you know, it's really important to identify a baby bird if you're going to bring it in and care for it to know what to feed it. Because <laughs> yeah, if you don't, seems, you seems should important. always know if you have a finch, they have an entirely different diet than an insectivore, such as a swallow, or most everything eats insects except for finches. So mm-hmm. it's really important to know how to care for them. And even a few days on the on a wrong diet can be um, detrimental to the health of the bird. Yeah, no, no doubt. You, so you you talked about you know in, the importance of of rehabilitation and conservation efforts. Have you seen people take a greater interest in these conservation efforts because they have these interactions with individual birds, maybe in a in a rehabilitation setting? Oh, definitely. Um, anytime we have an interaction with a wild animal bird, mammal, whatever it is, whether it's in our own hands, if you're not a wildlife rehabilitator, you find a baby in the backyard, there Mm -hmm. is something, everyone's got some compassion and they want to know what to do. And the first thing they do is they go online and try to find out what it is. And, (laughs) and, um, I'm always thinking, well, if you have time to find out, go to a birding site to find out what it is you have time to find out find a wildlife rehabilitator. So when <laughs> I'm involved the in these birding groups, yeah, it's the same amount of time. And you need to get to know whether that little bird should go right back outside um, or right. whether it's actually 
needing care or not. And so people get panicked. They don't know what to do. They can't mm-hmm. find help. And so um, I think I think there is a lot of compassion and empathy out there with what is going on in our world. And people do see that it's important to have wild animals still living around us or we're, we all can't live in balance together. We all... We don't mm-hmm. have a healthy environment unless we save these animals. What is one of the most interesting birds that you've ever worked with as a rehabilitator? Oh boy, I've had I've worked with so many, but um, I'll tell you the most fascinating one, of course, is raven, and mm. it's the largest songbird. Um, I have education ravens, and everybody says, "Oh, they're so smart," and it, it's like, okay, well, they're they are smart in terms of um, people, how people relate intelligence, but ravens have also have emotions. And, um, so to me, I think that it, it's sort of, even though they're intelligent and they have emotions, they have, um, I mean, I have a raven that's actually jealous of the other ravens when I go in in the flight (laughs) cage. So, um, so if they're capable of it, there's no reason why we can't believe that other animals and other creatures are capable of some form of an emotion. Um, we've seen it in elephants. We've seen it in, um, you know, crows mourn for magpies, mourn for the dead. And, um, so uh, at your initial question, I'm sorry, I go off on these things. <laughs> That's all right. That's all right. Please. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, the most um, interesting. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> on, on the other hand, I've re- I've rehabbed herons that are the most prehistoric, have no, yeah. in, don't care about anything but just eating and flying away. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. I think a lot of people who listen to this podcast probably have sort of an idea what to do if they find a baby bird. Um, but, you know, there, there's just as likely to be a lot of people out there who don't. So just to kind of, you know, reiterate perhaps for some what needs to be done, like if you find an unusual a, a baby bird in your yard along the trail, wherever you might be, um, what, what do you do? What, are the, what, are the, what is the process for getting that bird help? Well, the first thing that I would recommend is to obser- observation. Uh, observe Mm -hmm. whether there's parents coming to feed it, observe Mm -hmm. if it's able to walk around, if it's um, totally helpless, how much feathers, you know, how much uh, is it body covered with feathers? Is it vulnerable? Is there a cat lurking about? I mean, Mm -hmm. you have to just be observant and just stand back and kind of watch for a while. And if you feel that it's definitely injured, sick, um, the cat's going to get it or it's on a playground or whatever. You just have to really, really um, figure that out. And then the second thing you do is to keep it warm and mm-hmm. do not feed it or give it any water because you can actually kill it by doing that. When you're dehydrated, the last thing you want to do is eat something. And to give water to an animal, you can actually put water down into the lungs accidentally. So keep mm-hmm. it warm and then call for help and advice, but from a professional. Are there resources available for people to find rehab facilities, groups, whatever, or people, individual people nearby that could, you know, help them get that bird to a place where it can be, it can be properly cared for? Absolutely. 
Um, you know, as we said earlier, if you can Google what it is, you can Google. <laughs> yeah, right. uh, you you want to mention your location. People yeah. don't often mention where they are. And um, there's a there's a uh, website called Animal Help Now, and mm-hmm. you just Animal Help Now, and it'll you put in your zip code, and it'll find a rehab facility for you, or in your oh, wow, state if you Google. Um, wildlife rehabilitators in Colorado, you'll get a number of them and you can actually find the location close to you. Even if you don't have one in your town, you call one just to get advice from a professional who might know about Mm -hmm. that particular species. But then you've got to be able to identify what it is because the advice is important to know the natural history, whether that's normal for the baby to be out. How old is that baby bird? Um, it, you know, does it belong out of the nest? Did it just fledge? And by putting it back, you can cause the, the rest of the nestlings to jump out prematurely. So you really mm-hmm. need good advice before you take any steps on what to do. Are there any situations where making a wrong decision based on, you know, a misidentification of the bird can, you know, lead to a, a, a frustrating end for that bird? Do you have an example? Yeah, um, unfortunately, yeah, we've we've had many uh, a real. um, Well, I have a story in my book, and it was Mm -hmm. uh, some people were on a trail, and they were on um, a waterway, and they saw some baby kingfishers on the ground, and Mm -hmm. so they called uh, they called a local rehab place and to get advice, and the people on the phone didn't know anything really about kingfishers. They said, "Oh." Um, no, just leave them. That's normal. They're just fledging, you know, normally coming out of the nest. Well, kingfishers mm-hmm. nest in a burrow and these are belted kingfishers yeah. and they, bur- they dig a burrow seven feet in and it is not normal for them ever to be on the ground. So something dug away at the, be- at the entrance of the nest and they all fell out onto the bank below. By mm-hmm. the time I found out about it a couple of hours later, two of them washed away in the creek and two of them had drowned. I found one left, and I put it back in the burrow, and the, par- the parents were still feeding it. So this is a case where, uh, and they even fe- sent photos, but the photos were blurry. It looked like they had feathers. Yeah. They only had pin feathers. So you have to know what the way an animal lives to know, is that normal? Nothing that uh, nests in a cavity really should ever be on the ground. Swallows that nest mm-hmm. in cavities, um, they should be, they, sh- they live longer in the cavity at, before they fledge. So they should be able to fly. So if you find something on the ground, you know, know is that a cavity nester or an open cup nester? Yeah. yeah. So what are some things that you would look at to be able to make that distinction if you were perhaps a, a complete novice? Well, uh, if you find a baby under the tree, it's probably an open cup nester, yeah, um, cavity <laughs> nester in in the tree. I mean, not necessarily. Uh, you know, I should take that back. There, some cap like woodpeckers or cavity nesters. They should mm-hmm. never be on the ground. Um, but they 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 sometimes come out. You know, they come out and land on the ground. But they have feet that can climb back up. So do some owls. They can climb right back up in the tree. But um, you have to, so you have to look at your environment, where you think the nest was. There are baby birds that are found in the middle of the road that that can't fly and shouldn't have never been there. A predator might've dropped it though. Mm -hmm. So all of this takes some investigation. Mm -hmm. You almost have to be like a super sleuth, you know, and start investigating. Well, where did, do I see puncture wounds on it? Maybe those are from the raptor claws, you know, 
or a squirrel Mm -hmm. will take it and drop it and get scared. And so you you don't even know where it might have come from. Um, So a few details on the bird will tell you um, a a lot. It will give you a lot of information. This, again, maybe my book, if you happen to have it, will help you. (laughs) Or you call up your um, local Audubon or, you know, some other professional. Um, So what is your favorite thing about working as a bird rehabilitator? Favorite thing would probably be, uh, well, the interaction with the bird, which we're, we're very mm-hmm. careful about not habituating them um, to our feeding them. But um, just that it's a little creature, it's a little soul, it's a little spirit. And then the, you know, then releasing it. I just released a raven, a young raven. It was a late nestling. And um, she. it took 45 days for her to grow up and be able to fly well enough. And I take all ravens wow. back to their family because their family unit is still around. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I took her back out there. And what's nice, the finders is so interested. She sent me pictures and my raven a week later was with another raven, probably a family member, and they were sitting over her chicken coop, probably waiting hmm. for the, the chicken to um, hatch an egg. <laughs> anyway, it, it was just a wonderful experience. Huh. So, so the, That's wild. the release is gratification, but gratification when you hear a week later that your bird you had is still alive and, and you know, surviving out there. Yeah. That's the, that, I mean, that's got to be a reason why it's so important to note where you found a given bird, too. Um, not only because if it needs to go back to its parent, it can, um, if it was taken accidentally and shouldn't have. But, you know, in a bird like a raven or a crow or any sort of really highly social, you know, flocking species, um, that's going to be critical to be able to get it back to a place where it's going to be able to have the most success post-rehabilitation. Absolutely. It's, it's imperative. Um, there is a, I, I believe our, our permits tell us that we have to release within 10 miles. Well, we wow. um, have yeah. recommendations from uh, international wildlife rehabilitators that say within three miles. And I believe yeah. they need to go back to almost their immediate territory because when a wildlife rehabilitator should not change genetics, you know, it should mm-hmm. not mess with biology that much. So by taking a bird and releasing it far, far, far from where it came from, you could be introducing diseases that that area might not be able to mm. handle. Those those birds in that area are don't have that particular parasite, for example. So we have to be careful with um, biologically what we're doing, how we're changing the environment. Now, some people might say, well, one bird isn't going to affect, you know, the whole population and may, well, that may be, may be true um, to a certain extent. It's not our job to change ancestry. And I believe mm-hmm. that we should keep all the birds on their ancestral paths whenever possible. And that's not always possible. We we don't all also we don't want to raise them singles you know just mm-hmm. one baby bird at, at a time we try to find a match for it conspecific match so that it can have a buddy and maybe that forms a new family and then we pick the best yeah. location where one of the birds came from to release yeah at, le- at very least it will be able to learn from the from the species it's supposed to learn from 
Exactly. Yeah. You touched on something else is their self-identity mm-hmm. and learning. And birds are, they don't, they're not just a, a blank, they are kind of a blank slate when they, when they're hatched, but they, um, they have some things hardwired, some things yeah. that are innate, like wanting to eat and bag and things like that. But um, the, the, the more social uh, they are, the more that they have to learn from their conspecifics. Mm-hmm. And for example, Stellar's jays and uh, California scrub jays, two jay species yeah. that live in my area, it should not be raised together. They have different social dynamics and they can hmm. learn from each other the wrong things. And then they yeah. won't be attractive to their own kind when they go out and try to find a mate. So right. really important to keep them with their own kind. What do you think is the most important thing for people to know about baby birds and, and how to do what is best for them? They are fragile, but they're not fragile. I mean, they're born mm-hmm. to survive. Yeah. So when a baby bird is healthy and begging um, and and it needs to be warm. It needs to be feel secure, and the and the one thing that can kill any animal, it probably kills more animals that come in, is not what happened to it. Is stress and mm-hmm. shock, and shock I, is overlooked because everything wants to survive, so it's trying to run away, right? Well, it still mm-hmm. could be in shock. Its reaction is to get away. So mm. number one, you have to realize the animal you have is wild and it wants to get away from you. Doesn't want to be petted, doesn't want to be cuddled, yeah. doesn't want to be talked to in your language. It needs to feel safe and secure. And usually the first thing you want to do is to put it in, get it warm and put it in a, a box with a cover so it's safe and can't escape in your car while you're driving it to the rehab center <laughs> yeah. or while you're on the phone or that your cat can't get it while you're trying to find health for it. So the shock and the stress can kill more than the broken leg or the broken wing or falling out of its nest. Um, so that's the most important thing to keep in mind. Linda Tuttle Adams is the author of the new Baby Bird Identification, a North American guide. It Definitely fills a needed role in the bird book literature and is and is really fun besides. You can find it wherever books are sold. Congratulations again, Linda, and uh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much too, Nate. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. We are a membership organization, and the best way to support this podcast is by supporting the ABA with your membership. You get a lot of benefits besides, including magazines, discounts to partners, and opportunities to travel with us. You can get information about all that at aba.org slash join. Special shout outs this week to Stephanie Colm of Oceano, California, John Scavetto of Charlotte, North Carolina, and Nathan Wilson of Albany, New York, all of whom recently joined the ABA and noted the podcast as their reason for doing so. I hope they enjoy all the other stuff too. Thank you so much. Welcome to the ABA. Executive director of the ABA and executive producer of the podcast is Nikki Belmonte, who wonders if the neighborhood mallards need some time and rehab for a worrying quack addiction. Technical production is by John Lowry, who suggests a stint in bird rehabilitation for olive-sided flycatcher if it insists on ordering beers three at a time. Additional help with social media comes from George Munez, who wonders if the Brewers, Sparrow, and Blackbird can start an organization called Alcoholics Eponymous. 
You can find us online at ABA.org, on social media, most everywhere as American Birding Association. On Twitter, we are at ABA. I am, in fact, reminded of the time I tried to take an owl to rehab, and it said, no, no, no. Questions, comments, come to podcast at ABA.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thank you for listening. Stay healthy. See you next week.